So good afternoon and good morning to our, our panelists uh, in, in London and in other environs. Karibuni sana and welcome to the Rift Valley Forum. Um, today, this is a forum uh, for the book launch of Sharat. Sharat, I'll try not to butcher your second name. Sharat Srinivasan, When Peace Kills Politics, International Intervention and an Ending Wars in the Sudans in partnership with International African, Africa Institute and HAST. So for the past two decades, the Horn, the Horn and Eastern African region have witnessed a proliferation of peacemaking and peacebuilding processes as a means of democratization. A wealth and power sharing governance arrangements designed and upheld by regional and international institutions have seen the transfer of political decision-making away from the local and national level, consolidating them instead in the hands of belligerent elites and a global technocratic class of experts. This book provides a refreshing appraisal of the theory and practice of peacemaking by drawing attention to its inherent contradictions that contain risks of violent failure. The book launch will engage the history of interrelated peacemaking efforts and their failures in Sudan and South Sudan, from the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement to the more recent Juba Peace Agreement signed in 2020, and their potential to subvert nonviolent civil uh, politics. Our moderator today is Eddie Thomas, who is a fellow here at the Institute and a research associate at SOAS. He has worked for over 15 years as a teacher, human rights worker, and researcher in Sudan and South Sudan. My name is Polino Tienuskepa, and I'm the Forum and Education Manager here at the Rift Valley Institute. The Forum is a program of the Institute and is a neutral platform that is dedicated to critical exploration discussion and debate on important political, economic, and social issues within the Horn and Eastern Africa. Um, Eddie, over to you. Thanks a lot, Pauline, and welcome to everybody who's joined us today. Uh, we really appreciate you coming and sharing your time with us at this book launch. Um, I'm going to start introducing our uh, panel of distinguished speakers and our distinguished author shortly. But before doing that, I'd like to pass over to Stephanie, Stephanie Kitchen, who is here on the behalf of the International African Institute, um, which is um, responsible for publishing a lot of books about Sudan and has been very involved in this book. Stephanie, could you just uh, briefly introduce yourself? Thanks very much, Eddie. Um, and thank you to the RVI for co-hosting this event with us. Um, so I work at the International African Institute based at SOAS in, in London. Um, and for those who don't know, we're primarily concerned with the dissemination of research and knowledge on and from the African continent. Um, and as such, we run an extensive publications program, including the journal Africa, you may have heard of, as well as se several book series, including with Hearst, and the publisher of Sharath's book um, being discussed today. And we also hope to contribute to Hearst's significant list of works on Africa and other relevant regions, the Middle East, the Gulf, and, and so on. So our books published with Hearst are published under the rubric African Arguments, you may, you may have heard of. And um, the book series has been going since 2005 in its current format. And I'll, I'll put some links in the chat afterwards to, to save time um, now. In terms of recent books, that might be of interest to this kind of audience or, or region of the continent. For example, we've recently published a work titled Youth on the Move, Views from Below on Ethiopian International Migration, edited by Asnaki Kapale and Fana Gabrezenbert in Addis, and with a host of younger Ethiopian contributors. 
We have a work in production on the Sudanese revolution titled Sudan's Unfinished Democracy, co-authored by Raga Makawi of the RVI, Alex Duval, Justin Lynch and Willow Berridge. And perhaps we can talk to you about a joint event on that book in the new year. We're also publishing on Eastern DRC, Christoph Fogel's Conflict Minerals Inc, War, Profit and White Saviorism in Eastern Congo is forthcoming. And we have a new book titled Trade Makes States, Governing the Greater Somali, Somali Economy coming out next year. So that's just really to give you a flavour and also to encourage members of this audience and the panel to consider submitting to our series. You can either write to me or Raja Makawi can, can put you in touch. As I hope you do know, we contribute to the African Arguments blog. And this is really quite an early initiative in, in this particular media space established shortly after the book series around 2005, now hosted by the Royal African Society. And the blog's had various editors and iterations and has close links with the RBI, particularly through Magnus Taylor. Currently, Rajiv and I edit a section titled Debating Ideas, which by happenstance we launched to coincide with the COVID pandemic. Again, we try to give attention to areas that we hope are of interest to this audience. We regularly publish on Sudan and Ethiopia, also South Sudan, Somalia and Eritrea and have run blogs based on RBI funded research in the last few months. So for example, we've published Joseph Ding and David Meff, also Edward Thomas and Magdi L. Giuzuli and Joshua Craze who's speaking today. Um, we're pleased to continue that collaboration and also need more female researchers from your stable looking at that list. Um, again, please check the site and send us your suggestions for contributions. We particularly welcome these from researchers working in the continent and are happy to help you edit your work. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to distract from the main purpose of this session, which is to launch Sharath's book. But do drop me a line if there's anything you want to discuss. And thanks again to the RBI for the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thanks, uh, Stephanie. That's a, that was a great overview. And I, I learned a lot about what, what you do at the IAA from listening to you. So thanks for uh, telling us a bit about um, uh, the publishing world, the Africa publishing world. Um, well, uh, I'm going to move on now to, to the book launch itself. Um, I'm just going to start by giving a brief in introduction to our author and also to the panelists. Um, so let's start with, with Sharat, Sharat Srinivasan, who who teaches human rights at politics at Cambridge University. And he's written this, um, this great new book, which tries to explain how peacemaking and violence coexist in Sudan. And they've coexisted for such a long time in Sudan. Sudan's a country that's had a lot of peacemakers, a lot of peace deals and a lot of wars. And Sharath's book is uh, really uh, interesting, I think, in setting out how to explain how peacemaking can uh, potentially postpone civil politics, lock people out of civil politics and kind of tragically perpetuate the violent politics while trying to shift the country out of violence. So it's quite a lot of the central contradictions, central dilemmas of, uh, of Sudanese history that are addressed in his work. And he also has a very interesting uh, section in the book about the way that people power uh, works in a different way from peacemaking and, and, and the role of people power in bringing, bringing about change and bringing about peace when peacemakers can't. So there's lots of juicy questions there. I'm not going to dare to address them, but you know, it's what is civil politics? What's violent politics? What's peacemaking? How does it all work in, in, out in Sudan? 
and I'm very glad that we've got a distinguished panel here to help us to understand. I'm just going to give you a brief introduction and please uh, I'd apologize to uh, the panelists for being so brief because you've all had very, very interesting and rich careers, which I'm, I, I now have to summarize in 20 words. So please excuse me. But we'll start with Khuloud. Khuloud Khair, who runs a local think tank in Khartoum called Insight Strategy Partnership. And you may well have seen her commenting on recent events in Khartoum on the television. And she's also somebody who's shared her expert, expertise on, on policy implications of peacemaking with Sudan, the, the new peacekeeping mission in Sudan and, 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 and its donors. So that's Khuloud, who's going to be starting, who's going to be speaking right after Sharat has uh, finished. And then we've got Joshua Craze. Joshua's from the LSE and he's just written a brilliant takedown of the peace-building peace industry and its intellectual backers, or, or maybe he would say hallucinatory intellectual backers. And I am looking forward to his take on peace, uh, the current state of play in peacekeeping in Sudan, where there's a lot of weird things going on uh, with, the, with the, the peacekeeping mission kind of divorcing itself from street politics, which are so important in Sudan right now. And finally, Sarah Nowen. Sarah Nowen teaches law in Cambridge University and a university in Florence. And she's written some amazing, some must read books eye-opening books about how, how international lawyers have got themselves entangled in peace building and, what, and, and what, what are the legal implications of peace building. And she's always got something fascinating to say, something to learn about uh, when she talks. She's also written some great stuff on self-determination in Sudan, which maybe is for another day. I'm very honoured to have collaborated with all of our distinguished panel and, and with Sharat on different research projects, except for Khaloud, who I hope I'll be honored to be uh, collaborating with um, in, in, a, in, a, in a few months time, if things go to plan. So that's a quick overview of the panel today. And, and, and without further ado, I would like to hand over to Sharon to give us a bit of a talk about, you know, introducing his book and, and contextualizing it in, in, in this kind of strange moment that Sudan is going through. So Sharon, over to you. Well, thank, thanks so much, Eddie, uh, for the introduction, and really a big warm thanks to um, you, to the, to the panelists, um, to the organizers of the event as well at RVI, at IAI, um, and especially to, to Raja Makawi, who, who's really been instrumental in, in bringing this event together. It's a great uh, pleasure to be here and a real honor, and I'm really grateful to all of you who are also participating, who I can't see, which is a shame. So. Uh, this is a, a pretty uh, substantial book, and <laughs> I, mean, I say that mostly in terms of its uh, number of pages and the scope of the book. It really takes in um, many decades of civil conflict, civil war, authoritarian rule, and a multitude of peacemaking interventions, um, with a strong focus on um, the era around the comprehensive peace agreement, um, the making of it in, um, up until 2005, and then its legacies for both Sudan and South Sudan. But in introducing the book today, I actually thought I won't start at the start. It will take too long and will um, maybe not get as far as I would like. And rather, I'd like to start right at the end, indeed start in the events of right now in Sudan um, and uh, at the end of this book, where the book really ends. 
because uh, the book of course came out this year um, but was written and finished in 2020. Um, and so in Sudan today really there's this impasse which many of you uh, will know very well and it's an impasse that has on the one side uh, coup leaders, collaborators, conspirators and some who are perhaps coerced so the military security um, elites collaborators from rebel movements who signed the Juba Peace Agreement, who are sort of part of the, the deal um, on one side, conspirators in the form of some of the um, uh, erstwhile um, figures, senior figures in the Islamist government um, and the National Congress Party who have been uh, recuperated in a sense through this deal, and the coerced, perhaps most significantly to some extent, um, the Prime Minister um, Hamdok and his desire to, to find some way out of the situation that the coup led to. And on the other side of this impasse, of course, is, is in a sense the citizenry. Um, people, not necessarily all Sudanese, but a vast, uh, a vast multitude across the country and not just in Khartoum. Um, on the other side is the street, um, and especially, of course, the resistance committees um, amongst other organized civil forces. And so there is this impasse. And on the one side of it, we um, have you know, what is, in a sense, a, a political agreement. It's called a political agreement. And I think on the other side, what we have is political action. Um, and these two things are, are in contending with each other. Now, into that comes diplomats, peacemakers, um, trying to find a way out of this impasse. Um, and they uh, hold up this agreement um, and say, this is a transition to democracy and it should be protected. It has steps and milestones and it has promises. So the UN Secretary General, the UN um, Secretary General Special Representative, most recently the ones who are saying, um, this paper is good. Um, this paper protects your transition to democracy. Um, this paper with the good word of coup leaders, collaborators, conspirators, and the coerced protects your democracy that you want. Leave the streets, uh, leave your protests, your nonviolent resistance, your collective action, trust us, trust this. And on the other side, of course, is the street, and the street says no. Um, and they, the street, what, what does it say in effect? What can we read from it? They say, we are Sudan's democracy. We manifest it, we enact it. We are protecting it in our action, our demands. After all, we made it possible. When a palace coup tried to steal our revolution, we risked all, our blood was spilled, and we protect this democracy. We are resisting all coups, past, present, and future. We are sovereign. We are constituting our political community in the here and now. So I think this kind of impasse and that, that's this, this sense of what um, uh, is going on represents one entry point to understanding what I'm trying to do in this book. Um, it's an extreme version of contrast, which was not available in the years leading up to the CPA or even in the, the years afterwards, in which you could see a stark contrast between civil political action in the here and now, manifesting the thing that we would like to see at the end of war, and the modes and processes and mentalities and logics of peacemaking. And so I, I, I want us, anyone who's interested in this book, to, to really think of it in the present as not just a book that's about the near history of these countries, but also one that tries to echo through um, into the present events. And the paper that I'm holding up is actually not the political declaration that was signed between um, Burhan and, and Hamdok. Um, this paper actually that I'm holding up is a, a roadmap agreement um, from 2016 that was made possible through the AU um, higher uh, level implementation panel led by Thabo Mbeki. It's a roadmap agreement between the government of Sudan at the time and 
people like Jibril Ibrahim, Mini Al-Khomenawi, Yasser Aman, um, and um, the late Sadiq al-Mahdi. Um, and this was a roadback agreement signed in early 2016. And I, I, I raise it because it's one of the most um, interesting pieces of peacemaking um, that I, I think of recent decades. And that's because it is a roadmap agreement, but it has a wonderful clause, um, clause five of this agreed agreement signed um, by these parties. And clause five reads, the parties will also negotiate a roadmap with timeframes which will encompass the various steps visualized in this roadmap agreement. So peacemaking reached a sort of Kafka-esque classical reality in recent decades where roadmaps were agreeing roadmaps to come um, and these would all be the transition to democracy. Now, the Sudanese on the street might not know the details of this roadmap agreement in 2016, but they by, um, surely do know and understand very deeply um, the failures of logics and mentalities and modes and templates and milestones of peacemaking in many decades. That has always deferred the civil politics that they would like to see come to pass. And I think that's what the resistance at the moment represents. It's not just a resistance to the coup plotters and the conspirators. It's a resistance to the grave failure of a, a mode of peacemaking that um, has always held out a promise of something in the future, but has uh, never been able to really deliver it effectively. Now, this agreement was, you know, years in the making, this roadmap agreement in 2016. Um, and in 2014, and at this point, I'm, I'm going to go to right at the end of the, of the book that um, I've written. In 2014, I, I was in Khartoum and um, I, I was meeting with um, Khalid Omar Yusuf, who, um, as it happens, became a real um, significant figure in the events um, of 2018-2019, and, and then ended up actually the Minister for Cabinet and was imprisoned after the coup and recently um, released. And I was speaking to him in 2014 when Tabo Mbeki was in Khartoum to try and um, deal with promoting this roadmap agreement. And uh, he bemoaned the era, era of the CPA and some of the failed efforts after the CPA was signed to sort of bring about a civil politics in Sudan and what went wrong, and including some mere culpa sort of expressions of concern. And then bemoan what had happened after 2011 when South Sudan seceded and why he had, with others, um, in a, uh, for a while left the country, but then um, decided to leave party politics and these elite agreements behind and was one of the drivers of Sudan change now, a kind of movement-based politics um, amongst others. Um, so he was talking about this, and I was referring to the, the AU um, HIP um, efforts, and he said, we don't want to be part of this. We don't want to be part of the roundtables and negotiations with rebels, the whole thing. This never leads to anything if we couldn't manage to deal with the issue of the balance of power. The civil movements and the opposition political parties, their main source of power is people. So if you have an army, if you have 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000, you'll be something. and You can speak and negotiate with the regime and have something. But when you're unarmed, when you're a peaceful movement, you need millions to do that. It's harder, but it's also more sustainable because at this moment, if you could mobilize millions, not the interests of this elite, um, interests of this elite club. So we're going the hard way now, but it's the only way that could lead our country out of this. The problem with that, there is no manual to do that. You just have to keep trying to build this moment. And unfortunately you do it hundreds of times and fail hundreds of times, but at one moment it could happen. History tells us that. So that was back in 2014. And of course, um, 
there were many attempts at building a, a protest movement, etc. 2012, 2016, um, but 2018, 2019, uh, Khalid Yusuf, along with others, were at the vanguard of the forces um, for freedom and change um, that brought about the events of 2018, 2019. And as we will recall, um, that, that was not a smooth process at all, um, especially after the Transition Military Council was created. Um, this citizenry needed to retain a voice, a power, and the sit-in at the um, army headquarters um, characterize this. And two Sydney scholars have written about this, Amai Hassan and Ahmed Kododa, and uh, they described the situation of the sit-in in that period before um, the, uh, the, the civil military um, um, constitutional change occurred. And it's, they describe it as follows. The sit-in continued after April because protesters insisted on a civil, civilian transitional government. Citizens transformed the area around Kiada to, to, into a mini state offering food, free food and healthcare amongst other services. The site became a haven for artists. Dilapidated colonial era buildings were painted over with images honoring martyrs of the revolution and depicting visions of the future. Dozens of stages was, were erected with political activists speaking and artists performing every day and night. And I, I just want to characterize that because I guess what interests me and um, in, in thinking about what the argument of the book is, is the sort of here and now of political action as manifesting a kind of politics. I'm not necessarily making demands, making claims, but enacting a kind of politics that matters. And when I was concluding the book, um, I wrote about how the prospects for transformation still hung in the balance. What Khalid Omer, the Sudanese Professionals and Associations, the FFC, Sudanese Communist Party, et cetera, sought to learn from the Sudanese history of 1964 and 1985 intifadas, and also perhaps the Arab Spring experience, is that revolutions that are negotiated with status quo power must withstand and outfox counter-revolutionary forces. Such forces may otherwise flourish flush out the possibilities of real change and may install a new authoritarian model of control in the revolution's wake. And so I, I noted that, and I said that yet besides the need for a sharp political economy analysis and even more deft tactical maneuvering to prevent counter-revolution, the most crucial force for freedom and change remained the citizenry. Across Sudan, one key concern was whether the neighborhood popular resistance committees would continue to meet, discuss and act so as to be and become their new political future. And so I think writing and concluding the book in 2020 and then reflecting on the events now, it really does feel to me that this, this is the, 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 the crucial element, that um, nothing else protects the, the, the um, prospects of civil politics in Sudan other than the coming together of people in the here and now to enact their future and, and, and protect its possibilities. So I use this as a, um, a way to introduce the, what I think is the relevance of the book and the thrust of its argument. Um, what the book is doing is, is contrasting the logics of elite peacemaking in the Sudan um, with a way of thinking about nonviolent civil political action um, and looking for the ways in which the very means through which peacemaking intervenes in civil conflicts, its modes and mentalities of work, um, towards striking elite bargains, um, towards deferring politics to a constitutional reform process or elections or technocratic interventions to reform the state and security, et cetera. Um, that all of this work 
it's not the the argument is not that oh it doesn't manifest civil politics in the here and now because that would be naive and idealistic it's the fact that the very means of doing those kinds of interventions um, end up distorting and deferring that civil politics and they give currency to um, those actors who actually pursue political projects through coercion and violence so the, the argument really is that how the means and modes um, and activities of peacemaking end up reinforcing the currency of violence um, and, 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 as I said, displacing or distorting or deferring um, civil politics for a time that often is never to come. I would just say as a whistle stop on a couple of points that perhaps could be interesting to participants is that um, the core of the book takes us quite a way back um, to the making of the CPA um, and the uh, escalation of conflict in Darfur. And I, it goes from there to explain how um, the Darfur conflict rapidly accelerated because of logics of peacemaking. Um, and I go into quite a lot of detail to explain how and why that was the case and how the making of the CPA is deeply entwined with the violence and conflict in Darfur. Um, and then in the second half of the book, look at the post-CPA period and the legacies for the hollowing out of civil politics in Sudan during the CPA, CPA era, but also in South Sudan, where um, the unfounding, as I call it, of South Sudan gaining its independence, but fundamentally failing to found the political community was deeply tied um, with the logics of peacemaking. Um, and how it protected a kind of authoritarian coercive mode of rule and, and in effect legitimated it. Um, so that's the sort of scope of the book. I, I don't feel I've got um, any time to go into this detail, but I'm looking forward to the discussion with the panelists. So I'm sure we'll pull me back to some of the, those arguments. Um, so thank you, Eddie, I'll leave it there. Thank you. That was a great introduction to overview of your book. And it, I thought it really set it very clearly in some of the the dilemmas, the contradictions that people in, in Sudan are, are working through at the moment. You know, what is the way forward? Is it this process which runs the risk of kind of roadmapism, for want of a better word, or is it to take power in your hands directly? I'd like to uh, turn now to, um, to Khaloud to ask her to give the first of three uh, responses to, to Sharat's uh, talk. Um, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll be moving on to questions after our panelists have finished talking. So Khaloud, over to you. Thank you, Eddie. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with you today to discuss this timely book by Sharat. So we'll go ahead and share some reflections on the prospects for peace after the coup, which are filled with even more inherent contradictions now, um, picking up on some, some of the trends in uh, Sharat's book. Uh, even before the coup, it was clear that the Juba peace agreement process, um, that South Sudan and Sudan have largely reproduced the same peace-building orthodoxies of, for example, the CPA and the Darfur document for peace and others, which were um, negotiated with the, in, in large part with international actors. Then, as now, the focus on wealth sharing and power sharing between signatories, and I stress signatories as individuals, over a focus on root causes that affect constituencies, so a much larger group, such as inequality before the law, contingent citizenship, centralization of economy and resources. And such agreements bring elites from the peripheries into the center rather than work towards any equality in representation. And that's across the board. Sometimes too, they replace core constituencies at the center, subverting the established political order, but not for the better. The JPA, the Juba Peace Agreement, after the coup, for example, displaced central elites as the military's primary constituency or the military regime's primary constituency. 
um, who were the signatories of the Juba Peace Agreement, whom it now more desperately needed um, in order to maintain control. So what this has led to is not less violence for the constituencies of these new central elites from Indarfor or Blue Nile, but more violence meted out at the center on protesters and other replaced constituencies. And this is why we see a rise in state violence in Khartoum, as well as in areas of Darfur today. This trend is a function of the power sharing, um, wealth sharing modality of peace agreements. It is inherent to it. It is, uh, these agreements are neoliberal in nature and effectively distill the state and its relationship to polities to inter, into, into interpersonal and political relationships between military leaders and rebel leaders, effectively erasing uh, popular will. Under these circumstances, con constituencies, urban and rural alike, find little space or representation. And conversely, even those rebel leaders with few constituents suddenly find political prominence and voice. A good example of this is uh, Tahir Hajar and Al-Hadi Idris, both of whom sit on the Sovereign Council. For these rebel leaders, as well as more established ones, such as Mini Minawi, the Juba Peace Agreement becomes, like for the military, post-coup, the most important political document, superseding the constitutional document, and certainly the Burhan Hamdok deal of last month. For them, the funding of uh, the problem of funding still persists. There is a notable difference in this peacemaking modality um, this time, um, because the state largesse and international funding available to support peace processes as before, particularly during the CPA, are acutely absent. Post-coup, funding is not pouring in, and this will imperil an already fragile document. While the FFC and central political elites have always struggled with championing the interests of non-central constituents, genuine peacemaking does stand a better chance of success if there is, if there is a civilian dispensation to push through the three main areas of contention between the rebels and the military, and these endure even despite the JPA. These are uh, changing the structure of the state to be a more amenable to equitable distribution of funds, regional autonomy under a model of equitable citizenship, and meaningful security sector reform that would see the rebels willingly disarm. The Juba Peace Agreement currently does not look at changing the structure of the state or the economy and limits security uh, arrangements and security sector reform to the end of the transitional period, in other words, by elections. There are also outstanding issues related to the returns of IDPs and the census, which are in the JPA are meant to precede the elections. Uh, the new coup regime has stipulated elections in fewer than 18 months, within which, within which time a census is difficult and returns, given the current violence, is almost impossible. As things stand, the coup regime will now need to prove that it can do the following. Transition to a representative government, fulfill the needs and priorities of conflict-affected areas, address local drivers of conflict, and as much as the current agreement allow allows, address the root causes of these conflicts. Obviously, there will be challenges to this, and in many ways, it's the job of all interested uh, parties to the peace process to meet these four objectives. But the question remains whether there's a political space to pivot towards a peacemaking modality that can actually deliver on these priorities, or whether Sudan will be stuck with an increasingly difficult to implement and incomplete peace agreement that delivers neither peace nor indeed agreement. Um, looking forward to the discussion, but I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a great, great uh, overview, very crisp. Uh, and, and thank you for um, you know, explaining, uh, bringing us up to date with uh, perceptions on the, on the Juba peace agreement, which are at the center of uh, political discourse just now. Um, I'm, I'm, rather than comment on your, uh, your talk, I'm gonna pass uh, the mic directly over to, 
to Joshua now. So Joshua, could you give us your contribution? Thank you very much, Eddie. Thank you, Sharath, for a wonderful book. I won't mention South Sudan too much, except to say that I just came back from Warap, where you can basically, your book is a field guide to what is happening in politics there. There is a peace agreement in Juba, which is a sort of a, uh, an elite arithmetic of positions of commissioners and state governors. And what that's done is entirely undermined local legitimate form of politics on the ground. No one knows who these commissioners are. These state officials are part of an opposition that has absolutely no place in WARAP. Everything makes sense in Juba when you talk to diplomats because they live in a world of a sort of purely technocratic formalism. But when you go to WARAP, the current levels of violence are extreme and those levels of violence are produced by the push of this peace agreement onto a place in which the map in this case is absolutely not the territory. I, I really enjoyed the book. We've talked about it a bit before. I wanted to sort of give you, as is my one, a few provocations about the book in the hope they might produce a good discussion. I think what, Eddie, you said at the beginning was what the book looks at is how peace can postpone politics or defer politics. But I wonder if you would accede to sort of a stronger formulation of that, which is that liberal peacemaking is deliberately hostile to politics and deliberately hostile to local forms of legitimacy and the types of politics that you discuss in the book, I sort of struggle to find spaces when I think about the sort of bilateral agreements, the technocratic formalism of the CPA, the peace agreement in South Sudan, the Juba peace agreement, in which actually there are spaces within that for the types of discussion, open-ended, non-violent civic politics that you draw from Aaron, and that is sort of the, the model of the book. It feels much more like actually that underlying all of these peace agreements is, I know you wouldn't use the term liberal peace because I, I agree with you, it's more complicated than simply being liberal peace, but a sort of international intervention which puts at its high point regional stability, um, elite compact, and actually is very hostile to local forces. It's actually very hostile to the resistance committees. I, when I was in Khartoum a month ago, I can't name how many diplomats would say things like, but what do they want? What, what are they doing? Why are they so resistant to hierarchy? I don't understand. Like, can't they have like a speaker, someone who can come and be part of a, of a peace agreement? Right. Like, and I think that I, I, I'm making a joke, but I'm also not. I think there's something about the very logic of these forms of peace agreements that is actually really hostile to the forms of local arrangements, the forms of popular legitimacy that you talk about, that Khulud just talked about relative to what's happening now, that Eddie talked about at the beginning, and that actually also you see in South Sudan, right? Like any, any of these forms that say, we're not in means end relationships, to, to, to go back to Aaron, we're not in forms that produce hierarchies and diplomats' favorite word, timetables with implementation matrices, things that are open-ended that might go in all sorts of directions, that's a disaster for them. And so I think that one of the things that interests me about the book is that you still, by the end, when you sort of invoke Michael Barnett, um, want to find a place for peacemaking. But I wanna say, from the perspective of the Social Forces Act involved in politics, isn't peace the enemy? Isn't like the logic of these international agreements itself the problem? And I think when you look at the EU and the US response to the current political agreement that we have, it's very clear 
why it's problematic what they're doing right for them this is the problem solved at some level and hopefully maybe they will retreat from the dream world in which they live but i'm not banking on it right and i think that's a problem with this sort of peacemaking in general and then i want to just come back these are very quick points at the beginning of the book you say that adam branch's claim which is that we should be involved in disinterventionism is otherworldly and i agree with you it's otherworldly if that's a position that says there should be no international interventions, clearly that's not going to happen anytime soon. But couldn't we also think about this intervention as a politically pragmatic strategy? One that said that what we should be thinking about is that the EU, the US, the whole liberal peacemaking machine is not our friend and is not going to help us. And maybe tactically, politically, one has to instrumentalize it or think about it in some ways. But there is no reform possible there. And that just leads me to my last question before I shut up, which is that I think I'm very attracted by this use of Aaron, right? By this, the goal, the telos being these spaces that open up of nonviolent civic politics. And that is where politics can occur. At the same time, the danger for me about that, and I'm not, I'm in two ways about it. I would just like to know what you think is that it's pretty easily instrumentalized as discourse, not as actual practice. Clearly the practice of the resistance communities is precisely the thing challenging the diplomats, but as words used, they're words that every diplomat in Juba or Khatoum would say, wonderful, we love civic nonviolence. And I think what's elided there, and this is my last point, are the sorts of claims about socioeconomic rights and about class that you did see right, in 2019, and that you are seeing displaced and elided in South Sudan right now. And I think that partly the difficulty for me of the, 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 the idea of simple, of, of only having non-violence and civic non-violence as the space, as you, you sort of, you, you get rid of, or you don't talk firmly enough about the sort of socioeconomic claims and difficulties that Eddie and Magdi and Muslim Al-Nin and Inid Khulud have been writing about so well recently. So that's my last question and I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Joshua, for a characteristically uh, provocative set of questions. I really enjoyed uh, listening to your, uh, uh, the, the technocratic, your, your, your skewering of the technocrats. Technocratia actually appeared in the political agreement, the first mention of the word in a, in a, in a, in a Sudanese peace process. And, and it kind of suggests like politics isn't necessary. Uh, so it's funny to see it actually being uh, articulated by the by the latest political agreement. Um, I, I shouldn't be going on like this. I should be passing over directly to Sarah. Uh, Sarah Nowen, thanks so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to your talk. Thanks so much. First of all, thanks so much to the RVI for organizing this, for bringing us together. Then thank you, Sarah, very much for writing this book. And for all of those who are with us on Zoom and who haven't read the book and have only heard Sherrod's important intervention about what the book is about, but not his own evaluation of his own book because he can't really do that. Let me say a few things why this is a good book. First of all, it's beautifully written. And to be honest, it's quite nice to have a beautifully, it's just a nice read. Sherrod has a way of words. He loves metaphors and they usually work and they stick. Um, I won't give you many here, but there are really lots of sentences that you think, yes, he, he captures what's going on there in, in beautiful words. The other thing is that I think, leave Arendt and the theory aside for one moment. Any person who goes and works in Sudan at the moment and thinks, okay, which peace agreement am I at? You know, what's the most recent one? It is so useful to read this and to know this is kind of the history of peace agreements that I am now 
going to work with, you know, did this, as, as Douglas Johnson always said, the international community has this incredible uh, capacity to renew its ignorance every three years. Well, if, if the, the incoming diplomat doesn't know or only know some of the big names in this book, the empirical material is incredibly rich and through interviews for beautiful quotes, one really gets a feel of what has happened over the last 20 years in terms of peacemaking attempts. And then in terms of theory, I think this book is a contribution way beyond the Sudans. In the sense, we, we have established fields by now, I think, of the critical peace movement. So it's critical of peace building, it's critical of peacekeeping, but we don't really have a book yet that's so critical of peacemaking in the sense that Jared's work is, and, and really on this practice of negotiation. So for all these reasons, I think it's a huge contribution. Now, what I would like to do in terms of pushing us further is what I really see what Sherrod has an issue with is I don't think he has a real issue with the concept of peace because as he says, there's so many understandings of it, but with this, this the, the violence that is inherent in the idea of making. And he uses Arendt and says, look, Arendt contrasts kind of civil political action and that's very different from making things. And he, he objects against these means and logic that are inherent in peacemaking that then produce violence. Now, I would like to pick up on that in a, in a few directions. First, if making is the problem, then does it matter whether it is made by foreigners, which is the focus of your book, or does it, is there actually also a problem with local peacemaking attempts? You know, it, the, the, the criticism in the book is really about the foreigners because they have been leading it. But if you apply Arendt seriously, then I think any form of making is problematic. And that would then also almost apply to local peacemaking uh, attempts. So what's the difference? Why wouldn't that be the case or, or is it the case? So that's my first question. The second question with, uh, in relation to making is that you beautifully show in this book all the violence that is involved in the peacemaking and how it displaces political action. But doesn't that then also apply to the idea of making civil political action? So in the book, you beautifully distinguish between make peacemaking on the one hand, and then we talk also about fabricating peace. And on the other hand, you speak of nurturing civil political action or creating civil political action or enacting it. But the moment that the diplomats, Joshua's beloved diplomats come in, and they say, that, well, now we're going to nurture civil politics, you know, because that's the new thing. We're not going to focus on peace. We we're going to civil politics is the thing, the nonviolent civil politics. Let's go and nurture it. I mean, you use different words, but I, I wonder, isn't there actually the same type of means and thinking and um, risk of violence involved? And, and why did you choose these different terms? On the one hand, making and fabricating for peace, and nurturing and a few other kind of softer terms for when it comes to civil politics. And then finally, in defense, I would say, of uh, the, the, the diplomats. And of course, I, I totally agree with all the critiques, but I do get the impression at some, some stage, something has to be made. I mean, if we, we all admire the people who are out in the street and, and that that's civil political action that's taking place. But again, to use Arendt in a different way, an Arendt that you haven't used in the book, but Hannah Arendt also has this concept of the mob. The mob is this group of people who are together, come together against something. Brexit was a, a, a mob, you know? They are on totally different 
um, uh, uh, what is it, parts of the political spectrum, the right, the left, they come together against something. Now, that is what the street does. You are all against Bashir. You're in South Sudan voted against staying with the North. They agreed on that. But it's easier to come together and be against something than to come together and be to agree upon something. And the moment that you need to agree upon something, that's the kind of making which does this violence that, that you're against or that, that you, you weren't for. But at the same time, something seems to be need to happen for something to be made, to be produced. And I also thought in, in your the beautiful quotes that you have in the beginning of this talk, which are very inspiring, that's one side of the story of the resistance uh, committees. At the same time, I've also been in touch with people who are out there who are hugely frustrated with the inability to agree on anything and therefore to actually change things within the civilian side of the, the government. And, and almost came down to like, that's our own weakness and we have to make. So long story short, are there good sides of making? Uh, thank you so much, Sarah. That was a that was a great summary and a great positing of some important questions about the the relationship between peacemaking and political action, which is at so much at the centre of, of this new book by Sharon. Um, before uh, turning to the participants and uh, the audience uh, for their questions, um, I'm, I'm going to give Sharon uh, an opportunity to respond to uh, to our three speakers. So let me pass over now to Sharon. To, to respond to those three uh, uh, great interventions that we've just listened to. Thanks, Eddie, and uh, thanks, Halud, thanks, Joshua, and thanks, Sarah. Um, they're, they're great comments, and they you could have you could have pitted some of the comments against each other of the panelists and see what I could just step back and see what happens because I think there is a, there's some healthy and important tensions here um, that everyone's bringing out. I mean, I think from Halud's point of view. You know, for all of the shortcomings of the JPA, something needs to be done. But right? we do we do need a better agreement. We need to ensure that there's a better version of security sector reform. There's a better idea of the reform of the state and and how it works. And and so that I think is the close end of policy making and doing things and needing to make things. And I it goes to sort of Sarah's point. And I guess I I'm I'm not ignorant of that or trying to in the book I make an argument that's ignorant of that. But I'm I'm trying to get us to see what sorts of tensions there are in that, because we tend to repeatedly try to less, learn lessons, try to improve these things, but fundamentally we're feeding the same beast. And so we might get marginally better security sector reform, we might get a better decentralization model or whatever, but we tend to have, it's the same people who are signing these agreements who tend to be in the elite sort of um, forms of PACs and rent seeking that, um, you know, reproduces these, these, these pieces of paper as well. Um, so I guess going to Josh's, Josh's uh, first point, which is, look, am I a bit too soft on, on on these modes of peacemaking? Um, aren't they really deliberately hostile to the kind of civil political action? And I actually would agree with that. I don't think, um, I think the reason why I'm maybe a little bit softer on that is I, I recognize that it's more of a tension and an inevitability of this tension. Um, but I actually do agree with you. And I think it's not just about liberal peacemaking because if I were to take the five main 
sort of modalities. Um, there's the, you know, the elite deal sort of mode, you know, modes of conflict management and power sharing, wealth sharing, et cetera. Very hostile to uh, kind of civil political action in the sense that that's, it's about sort of, you know, packs and putting down arms. Um, liberal peacemaking, idealizing these constitutional prescriptions and democratic sort of transformations and rights, et cetera. The here and now of actual political action is definitely anathema. Um, it's messy. It's sort of, you know, what are these wars really about? Don't need to worry about that. Let's just bring about um, the sort of future politics in a templated form. Um, so that's definitely hostile as well. And I think also, yeah, the technocratics of state building efforts are sort of very much seen as we saw in South Sudan um, during the CPA transition years, was busy building all sorts of different, um, you know, reformist institutional projects and peace dividends, et cetera, but very ambivalent towards civil politics. Um, so I think that's also quite hostile. But I think I would also just emphasize that the two other sort of modes of thinking about this, sort of the political economy approaches, um, much more attuned to more complex, um, you know, ways in which these deals can be um, thought about in terms of the domestic political economy and political settlements, political marketplace, etc. I actually think also tends to really be quite hostile to civil political action. It tends to reduce politics to a set of socioeconomic sort of relationships. And, and so I don't think it's particularly open. And then I think there's this broader peace building, you know, local peace building, you know, um, approach. And, and the problem there is, yes, it seems to valorize a sort of local politics and, and you know, um, people on the ground doing things. But the idea that, that at a sort of, at a more national level, that there's, a, there's a claims on the political future of a, of a nation or a political community is, is sort of kept out of view as well. So in lots of different ways, I think the kind of politics that, I am interested in seeing, well, what's its relationship to these modes of peacemaking is definitely something that most of these dominant modes are hostile to. So I kind of agree with you actually quite strongly on that. And I think that it is an interesting question of, well, what kind of pragmatic disintervention makes sense? Or what kind of alternatives are there that um, allow us to, to put back this deal-making um, elite liberal peacemaking sort of modes of action in, back in its box. And I don't think that I'm against that. And I don't think I'm necessarily for rehabilitating peacemaking in its current form. But I, I guess what I felt in, the, in this book was that there was a certain sort of um, inevitability about these sorts of interventions. And if they are going to be so significant, that there's, there's a lot more that can be done for them to be attentive to their effect on civil politics. And I want to at least bring that in, back into view. It's not as much of a radical position, but I think it's actually still really important that um, a bit more awareness of what's the effect of these short-term means and instrumental sort of logics, what's that effect on, on civil politics has to be at least brought a lot more closer into view. Um, and uh, I think um, I think you're right in a way that the Arendtian sort of approach to this book, this approach to putting an emphasis on civil political action, um, it does align a bit the socioeconomic complexities that are about the longer term transformations that are required in a country like Sudan. I think between rural and urban, as Eddie and Magdi have, have you know looked at very closely, these are all super important. Um, but I actually think that in some ways, as important as that is, that is getting more and more attention. Um, I think the socioeconomic does get a lot of attention in, in good political economy analysis of the nature of the state and, and um, society and socioeconomic relations. Um, what is getting less attention or tends to be, I think, undermined is this focus on a civil political action at the level of political community that is trying to sort of imagine and secure an alternative sense of 
the nation, constituting the political community. I think that tends to be the least uh, given, least attention out of all of these different models. So I think it does align it to some extent, but uh, perhaps also for good reasons, perhaps, you know, one way of thinking about that. Um, and then finally, just, um, yeah, Sarah, I think is right to say, well, look, there's a lot of, isn't some amount of making good, um, which is to say these agreements and deals and constitutional prescriptions and work plans and et cetera, um, and the building of you know, state and government, et cetera. And I don't think that um, either Arendt's thought or even the thought in the book um, is, is unaware of that. I think it's, it is really important, but there is a difference between making that is you know, templates and constitutional drafts coming from Fiji or the Max Planck Institute or wherever it's coming from, and making that is the citizens coming together to create the laws that will govern their political community. And I think the contrast is what I'm interested in. I'm not going to idealize the latter. We live in a complex independent world, but the contrast of that kind of making, um, you know, that the constitution is not an act of government, it's the act of the people, and act, you know, constituting a government, right? That, that idea, when, when did that ever happen in South Sudan? That kind of contrast is very important. So making is inevitable in politics. We have to make buildings that are parliaments, we have to make constitutions, we have to make laws. To what extent is, are those of and for political action? Are they made through political action? Um, and for political action, I think is an important tension. And I'm trying to bring that out because I think that peace as making tends to not understand that, that tension. It tends to just actually obscure it or defer that problem to a latter time. And I think that, yes, it is, there is a risk to try and foster or nurture um, political action. It ends up bureaucratizing it and make, you know, instrumentalizing it. And actually, the most interesting thing, just to return to the present, about the resistance committees is that since after 2019 until the present, um, there were lots of attempts to instrumentalize the resistance committees, to co-opt them within the transitional arrangements as you know, neighborhood development committees or whatever, or for parties to bring them in under there. And, and actually the one thing that was learned all along is that the freedom to resist is the first freedom of all. So I think to some extent the resistance committees have kept that at bay and that does make them unruly. It does make them, you know, um, hard to fathom and people are scratching their heads. And yes, even if you're within them, it's hard to know where that's going and where that might lead. But I mean, that is also politics that we accept as vibrant, as plural, as dynamic. That is the politics we, we value. And yet we don't seem to be able to see it in that kind of sense when we see it in, in other contexts, I think. And there is a risk of that being unruly and being not the kind of politics we would like. Um, but I, I think it, um, it needs a lot more attention and um, it needs to be valued in a more fundamental way than it has. It's, it's, I think it's far too undermined. So I think I'm trying to swing the pendulum back to understanding the importance of this, but not trying to valorize it at, at the same time. So I'll leave my um, replies there, but thank you so much everyone for your comments. Thanks a lot, Sharon. That was a great set of responses uh, to the responses um, and really got us all thinking. Um, I think your book is incredibly topical at the moment, where all of us, to some extent or another, we've got to place our bets either with the process or with the street politics. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult sometimes to think through the implications of those choices, although we might all each of us have instinctual tendencies towards one or the other. And I think we've got three questions up already, and they, they're, they're all interesting variations of, on this theme. And uh, I think if it's all right with everybody, oh, we've got four questions now, I'd like to 
take maybe a couple of them at a time and I'd like to invite um, Irene and uh, Bashir maybe just to, to, to raise their questions rather than have me read them out. But Irene and Bashir, over to you and then I'll also ask uh, Matai and Razia to uh, ra raise their questions in person. So uh, Bashir, over to you. Uh, no, thank you so much. Really interesting discussion. I haven't read the book yet. It's on my um, on my uh, on my top list uh, at the moment. Uh, just briefly, um, just to um, you've talked a lot about the issues how um, we there's a need to move away from the, this kind of top down and uh, centralized elite politics. What is needed, like practically now, the steps that everyone can take to make that a reality. Uh, you know, what are the most likely scenarios, like, um, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario, but also realistic scenarios. And um, finally, um, are there other examples of when peacemaking was uh, successfully decentralized? Um, it doesn't have to be in the context of Sudan or uh, East or Horn of Africa, but in other contexts that could be a learning. Um, and I'm sure um, this was already potentially in the book and elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Bashar. And I'll, I'll just ask uh, Irene to uh, to ask her questions too, because they're 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 kind of a similar question. Um, thank you very much. Uh, but my question was about uh, um, the peace processes that have been mentioned during uh, during this presentation. I happen to have participated in many of those mentioned over the years, both for Sudan and South Sudan. And I can agree, especially at the personal level, uh, level with some of the criticism, but then what is the alternative? What kind of processes can, uh, can we collectively, national actors and international actors, regional actors, we shouldn't uh, forget about them, um, devise which are feasible? Nobody really likes, especially on our side as, as you and, and other partners, nobody really likes to involve um, and talk to those carrying the guns, but they are those fighting and those who need to agree to stop it over. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you very much to you both. So over to the panel now, what is to be done? Who would like to start? Maybe we can start with Joshua on this one. Sure, I mean, the, it, for me, it's a limit of the sort of framework that I take that if you think that the like legitimacy actually stems from the form of activities that Sharath is writing about from resistance committees and discussions, it remains really hard for me to understand what position you take qua regional actor and about the armed groups that are on the ground. So I don't, I, like, I think there's for me, and maybe Sharath is much better at reconciling these two positions, there's something like a parallax between a position that says the legitimacy extends from open sets of negotiations and legitimacy stems from agreements between armed actors and the, and I understand the genuine needs of diplomats like Irina to engage with those armed actors. I like the comment that Sarah made about Aaron and the, and the question of, okay, look, in Aaron, it's not just that you have politics, which is against making, uh, which is against labor, but they have to have a relationship to them. And there are certain types of making that would enable politics and certain types of making that would destroy it. But relative to these peace agreements, I don't have an answer to Eddie's question, what is to be done? Because for me, that's a very Marxist question that comes back to the question of the ground. So I really sort of want to hear from Sharath about how one responds to Irene's question. Well, before uh, taking that to, uh, thank you very much, Josh. That was a great response. Before uh, taking it to Sharath, could I ask Sarah to, to respond? Khaloud, would you like to uh, respond to Irene and Bashayat? 
I mean, it's, it's kind of the perpetual question, isn't it? How does one do this better? Is it worth doing this at all? Um, if we keep getting it so wrong. And I understand why this befuddles policymakers, because there is this inherent need to do something, right? Because you get the criticism, of course, if you don't act. Unfortunately, what we've seen of late is the worst kind of response, I would say, which is that it completely aims to depoliticize any um, movement, um, both that of um, some of the rebels and also some of the street protesters. We've seen this very concretely, I would say, with the uh, integrated UN mission here and, and particularly the SRSG, um, who in his uh, response to both the coup um, as well as then the, uh, the sort of subsequent protests and then, you know, all sort of culminating in Guterres, the UN Secretary General saying that the, you know, the Sudanese public should just get on with things now and, and sort of forget about the coup, completely depoliticizing it. And on the other hand, um, or also in, in addition, um, equating uh, the, the politics or the non-politics, if you will, of the street with what um, which would they also frame as the non-politics of the military. Um, and I think that is, first of all, you know, it just blatantly incorrect. But beyond that, it feeds into the military's rhetoric that, um, you know, for example, violence that emanates from the street is akin to violence that is um, meted out by the state and that, you know, the, the street not being able to, you know, get together a, a policy or a strategy, um, which is not their job, they are a lobby group and not a political party, um, is, is sort of a weakness that is on a par with, um, with, with them as political beings. It's, that's, it's not the same. We are looking at apples and oranges and they are being sort of falsely equivocated. So I think not reproducing those things, I think, is definitely a good place to start. In terms of how does one move forward, I think you can't base an entire set of responses, and that's from the UN, from uh, bilaterals, as well as other multilaterals, on conversations had with a small group of uh, Khartoum-based elites. It, that makes absolutely no sense, um, mostly because that's not where politics is happening. Politics is happening um, in other places. Uh, it's happening in, in you know, the, the quote-unquote periphery. It's happening on the streets um, of urban centers. Though it is illegible, I would say, to policymakers of these, you know, large amorphous groups that um, don't behave in, in, you know, these ways, as, as Joshua said, you know, with timetables and, and timeframes and, and a sort of acute um, deliverables, um, there, there should be more of an effort to understand these groups rather than this exp expedition or this um, expediting non-politics and therefore dismissing them altogether, which is much more what we're seeing. And I think, you know, once there is some realization of that, for example, the SRSG's rather clumsy invitation to meet with resistance committees, it is rightly met with confusion and, and, and mistrust by the street um, because they recognize that they are the ones, as Sherrod said, um, read earlier, that, um, that statement of purpose that they had, they realize that they are where the changes are happening. And yet whether you know, international community is concerned, they're completely dismissed. So that sort of incongruency, I think, becomes glaring the more one talks to um, street movements, etc., and ignoring them altogether, as what we have seen largely, is just definitely something to steer away from. It's a good point of departure, I'd say, to engage with the street. Thanks a lot, Khalid. That's a, a set of really fascinating comments on the here and now. And I think it must be a very uncomfortable time to be working in UN peacekeeping in in, in Khartoum, many people went there uh, very idealistically a few uh, months ago, and I think they're confronting something uh, much messier than they expected. Sharath, you were saying a bit earlier that 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 you know one of the a possible thing to be done is to make 
peacemaking kind of more attentive to civil politics. And I wonder if that's your position, because you've set up this, this kind of dilemma or this, this, uh, this dichotomy between sort of civil politics and street politics on the one hand and process politics and technocrat politics and power politics on the other. Is, is, it, is, it, is it something about improving the current processes by making them you know, listen better? Or, or, or is, 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 is there a, a complete change of type that's needed? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the $60 million question. And I'm very cautious about saying, oh, the problem is models and theories and templates and designs for peace. But here's a better model, theory or template or design for peace. Like, I, I really don't just want yeah. to do that. And by the end yeah. of the book, I'm very careful not to. I want us to think more about what we're doing when we're trying to make peace. Um, and, and stop to think, first of all. And I think that's a really important point to, to stress because um, I think the first thing I want to understand going to, for us to understand going to some of Irene's concerns that she raised and Irene's concerns that she raised in the chat is that the first controversial argument I'm making is that the very thing you're doing when making peace that is a deal between belligerents, incumbent and, and, and otherwise um, is is actually a violent intervention that is reproducing violence, right? So I'm actually trying to say that rather than say, oh, this is, this is all we can do, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to get the guys with the guns to put down their guns. What I'm, the first intervention is if you look very closely at the interventions during the CPA era, the interventions themselves enacted a certain type of violence on the politics of the war and fueled violence responses and whether that argument is you know persuasive or not is, is for those to, to measure in the book but in the close range analysis of what happened with the making of the CPA and the, the conflict in Darfur it's the it's the very it's not that this was the, the best of a bad lot of policy options the very policy option itself actually reproduces logics of violence and it is in some respects um, you know, um, violent in itself. And it, that comes down to some of the ways in which the conflict has to be talked about to make it amenable to making a deal and thus displacing and you know, a lot of other actors who have claims on that space, et cetera, North-South conflict that is actually still you know, heavily interwoven with intra-Southern violence, but in the CPA that gets elided from view. That's a violent act into the politics of different claims because it, it, it suppresses different voices and then it reproduces resistance. So the first argument is that it's not as simple as this is the, you know, the best chance, this is the only thing we could do, because if the thing that you can do is actually reproducing violence and is a violent act, it's worth thinking twice about that first thing itself. I think the second point is that, you know, it ends up being a stitch up because it's not like we say, okay, we'll just get these elite belligerents to strike a deal and put down their guns. We then dress it up because we're forced to, as this is the moment that will bring about constitutional transformation. This will bring about reform. Here are these rights and liberties and decentralization um, um, things that are put into this agreement. But that's a stitch up because actually what the primary thing that the deal is doing is it's reinforcing the rights to rule of those who are parties to the agreement. Um, and they will sign up to anything. We, and then so there's a false promise that attaches to these models as well in the name of necessity, in the name of pragmatism. And that is also a reproducing violence and is a violent act. And I think the first thing is just to sort of comprehend what is wrong with these modes of intervention um, as acts in the world that reproduce violence. And I, I, I would really insist upon that. It makes it very hard to think about what alternatives are, because I think what I'm saying is in some sense, this is a tragic problem of intervening 
in civil wars is that the very attempts and the very modes and mentalities and ideas and tools that you've got available to bring about a nonviolent politics in the future reproduces logics of violence um, in the very you know, means of trying to bring that politics about. Now that that makes it quite a tragic problem in a way. It's I think one that's very hard to unwind with a better model or a better idea. So I'm I'm not going to sort of pretend that there is one, but I think it's worth thinking about if that if that's true. It, um, it, it gives gives tremendous pause um, for thought and reflection, and I don't think there's much pause for thought or reflection on on that um, that's sufficient. But I, I would point to, you know, there are going to Bashir's point. I think there are other processes that have had other qualities, um, not necessarily because they were better designed or, but they just happened to have circumstances that supported other qualities. Um, you know, um, peace processes in Nepal, for example, because of the forces that were involved, um, led to a much more longer term inclusive discussion process involving civil forces, civil, you know, what we might call civil society, but also the, um, the, the, the um, movements that had, had taken power. So it was a complex attenuated set of discussions over time between different actors that were seeking to reconstitute the polity after war. Um, I think that kind of thing is circumstantial as, as a, rather than necessarily of design. But I would say right now in the Sudanese context, I mean, going to, to, uh, to um, Khulud's point, I mean, depoliticizing what is happening on the street or trying to find some kind of agenda or whatever from it is, is completely wrong. I think if I was to think of my, if I was to think for me of a pragmatic via media, a way forward, a way through in all of this and, and um, trying to take up Joshua's challenge, it's that if it's of necessity to do this kind of elite sort of deal Thing. The one thing that could be done right now is protect the right of the space as an ongoing space, as a counterpower to the necessities of this deal process with rebel leaders and security actors and military, etc. So that's the best thing you've got. The one thing you can't afford to do is say, oh, go home now, go back to your jobs. Um, you know, go until the land or whatever, because, um, you know, it's okay, the agreement will take care of politics. It's like the one thing that you've got that protects and that in the experience since 2019, the, the thing that has protected this from being a palace coup that was counter-revolutionary, that released the, uh, the former figures in the government from jail, um, made deals with rebels and stitched up a new authoritarian model. The one thing that has stopped this throughout has been the people power. Right. So the one thing you can, can't afford to do is say, oh, belittle that. It's not doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't have a leadership. It doesn't represent anything. It is the thing that has protected the possibility of hope and change. And and that has to be protected in its own right as its own thing for its own purposes, not because it should be something different, become something, etc., because it is the guarantee of a process that might lead something, you know, lead us out of the, of the, the decades of, of, of false promises. Thanks so much. That's great, uh, Sharif. I'd like to ask Matai and Razia to, to raise their questions. There's a sort of theme running through them, which is like the fact that the, the problems of elite peace building, uh, peacemaking, um, but uh, Matai's got a very interesting suggestion, which uh, I think it'd be great to hear your responses to. And Razia, after Matai spoken, maybe you could give your question. So over to you, Matai. Thank you so much. So my question, uh, you have made a good summary of it. Uh, my idea is that, you know, most of the time when 
uh, we, we produce work of this nature, like the current author is talking about. We tend to forget the fact that, you know, the political space in the Sudan is more or less in the hands of the elites. And so when we are putting up, uh, you know, critique against the international intervention, we also need to, you know, organize ourselves around uh, the real power that lies, you know, in the hands of the civilians. So my idea was that the argument that we put forward should also, you know, align with the realities on the ground. For example, the local players are left without being, you know, supported by international actors, uh, honest international actors, for, for that matter. So that, that's what my question was trying to, you know, build around. Thanks, Matai. Razia, would you like to ask your question as well? Thank you, um, Eddie, and good day uh, to um, all the panelists. I think this is a very timely discussion. So my, yeah, my question I think is just linked to the elite, you know, arrangements and compacts. We've seen in Africa, um, you know, that they rarely work for sustainable and inclusive peace. And so if you had the power, you know, there were no limitations, what is the one thing that you would do or recommend uh, for this, um, you know, for, for some kind of peacemaking or some kind of process that would catalyze the inclusive peace um, and politics? in South Sudan and Sudan. And I think Sharad started to speak partly to um, the need to protect the space um, for the people, the, the civil movement and protests. Uh, but what else uh, can be done? Thank you and over. Well, uh, let me pass those questions to Sharad. And then if other panel members would like to answer them, would like to address them, they can do that immediately after Sharad. Sharad, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're great questions. And I think that I might specifically think about South Sudan in this context, because I think we have spoken less about South Sudan. But um, one of the, the, the obviously the book focuses on the CPA, the CPA and the CPA era, and um, in particular looking at the sort of period between 2005 up to 2011 and then 2013 and the onset of the civil war in South Sudan and trying to make sense of, of what happened there and how peacemaking was related to to that story and I, I guess I mean just on the one hand I would I would say that the argument that I make I'm making and relates to what could be done differently is um, is the fact that what the CPA did was preordain a, a sort of a government in waiting it's you know, the SPLM um, SPLA uh, became the southern regional government uh, with a referendum that was guaranteed to occur, and the SPLA is pretty much the army of southern Sudan. So, in a sense, it was a government in waiting. It was a protest. It was a you know a, a de facto state, um, in, and th there was a lot to be done to negotiate the the secession of South Sudan with with Sudan. And, and Sarah can talk a lot more about that. But the the logic of that, I think, was to say this is done. This is a done deal. And the the problem with that is it it didn't put any effort or any energy into how the, the Southern Sudanese sought to imagine and envision and constitute their political community with independence. So the founding of this new you know, political community was, was fundamentally flawed because it was preordained, it was pre-decided, it was preset. Um, and it sucked out any space for political discussion or necessity for it. So I think what I would say is that if you could rewrite this and say in 2005 that actually we would like to do things differently and going to to Razia's point and you can I mean obviously you do need to get the kind of political settlement that stabilizes and reduces the, the guns and the threats of violence and that was not something that was achieved anyway but I do think it's 
it's like, well, what kind of process and space can be opened up for a long period of time that would enable the, um, the kinds of discussions and exchanges and representation and making of through, through that process of a new polity? Um, I don't think that was ever contemplated. It was never, there was a lot of focus on, you know, public expenditure management and security sector reform and building bridges and um, a bit of civic education here, elections, etc. But the idea that this is a longer term um, th thing that we're protecting the space for the kinds of discussions by Southern Sudanese as they make their political community, as they make their nation, I think that was given short shrift. Um, so if I, if I could do every, everything different, you would be like, okay, you know, what's the, in some senses, um, what's the, the, the necessary minimum to reduce the, the threats of overt violence? Um, and what's the long-term way of giving enough time and space to fostering um, those processes of coming together and deciding what kind of um, politics makes sense? I don't have a very you know, neat and simple answer to that, but I think that's what's missing is something in, along those lines. And going to Matei's point, I mean, I think, I think it's absolutely right that um, there's got to be forms of solidarity between external actors, not necessarily foreign countries and governments in the UN, but external actors and those who are seeking to, to, to manifest that kind of civil politics. Um, and that's something that is, isn't, I don't think, we don't have a very good handle on how to do that effectively. Um, and that's, that's something that we need to give more attention to. But I think Joshua might have better thoughts on that, so I'll hand over to him. Thanks, Joshua, Sarah, Kulu, do you have any uh, things that you would like to add? Thanks. I mean, I would uh, just echo what Sharath's saying. I think that the problem with the, the, the peacemaking modality is that it hasn't really changed in 100 years, let's say, since probably the Treaty of Versailles or something. We're still using that same model and that same orthodoxy of, you know, this party A brings their leader, party B brings their leader. They roughly know, you know, where what their positions are before they start. And we try and find something in the middle that this, you know, sort of satisfies all of them. And there's a whole science that is built up around this. You know, there's a pin model, there's an onion model, there's a whole set of models for um, making peace, but none of them obviously have worked. So it brings us to Einstein's definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Why haven't we unpicked this model? Why haven't we sort of thrown out what clearly doesn't work, or hasn't worked? And sort of, even if we are to follow this, um, scientific approach why haven't we come up with anything else why are we so wedded to this and i think that's a political decision it's a choice to want to um stick to something that we understand rather than try something new and i think that's really what is basically hamstringing a lot of uh, the co current conversations about how to have inclusive politics in sudan during um a period where there's also a, a sort of groundswell of popular um popular movements and if you look at the at the resistance committees and the holdouts of the uh, Juba peace agreement um obviously the, the signatories have their own sort of political calculations but certainly the holdouts abdul wahid and abdul aziz what they've said very clearly in especially at the beginning of the uh, revolution in 2018 when they sort of had the ceasefire and said let's give this a chance it is actually a lot of congruity between what they're asking for and what the streets are asking for which is that, you know, the three things I mentioned earlier in my um, sort of roundup, which is, you know, restructuring the states, proper centralization and proper sort of security sector reform. Those are the things that people want. Um, they may sort of frame them differently, but in essence, there's a lot of um, complementarity between them. But of course, the way that current mediation efforts um, are set up is that you would have a table and you can't obviously invite an entire, you know, 
resistance committee to the table. And so in effect, you're, it makes it easier to dismiss them. So I think we need to look at the modality of, of the mediation itself, especially because we've seen that it hasn't exactly worked. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to push, I guess, Sheriff on this again. But I take your point that there's not just liberal peace building. There's also a question of which political actors are given a space by peace agreements in both of the Sudans and that there's a certain like realpolitik model that says what we need to do is bring in the elites with the biggest guns. But it also seems to me that's sort of hardwired into the way people make peace. And it's not an accident that there is no answer to the question of, well, how do we bring in civic spaces? How do we bring in social forces into these peace agreements? Because it seems to me those forces that are actually pretty antagonistic to the overall goals of what liberal peacemaking in its broadest sense does, which is try to ensure regional stability, capital continuity. It's precisely what led post 2019 for me to the shape in part of what Hamdok's government looked like. And I think part of the problem to go back to Matai's question is that the way that the international community present themselves in these situations is to think we are outside of this. At the very beginning of your book, you have a lovely line where you say, the internationals are there from the very beginning they're within it. And what are they actually within? I think that the way that these peace agreements are presented when they look at armed actors is they present them as a camera. They take a picture of a country to give a moment. But of course, as we know, they're not a camera, they're an engine. And actually what they produce are types of violence. And I think a lot of the questions that I've read sort of presuppose that there is violence in the country and a peace agreement needs to restrain it or it needs to bring the armed actors in so we have peace. But all you actually see right now in South Sudan is that what the peace agreement has created is a different modality of violence. It's no longer called belligerent violence between two, effectively two parties in what is still basically a bipartisan agreement, just like the CPA. Instead, what the political elites do is they instrumentalize forces on the ground. The international community is very happy with this because they call it intercommunal violence. And so the peace agreement allows for a certain form of violence, not called state violence. And then that violence continues, right? The actual point of the peace agreement is not peace is a certain model of stability. And this is why, you know, again, I remain pretty skeptical that these peace agreements can actually be put to the sort of emancipatory tasks that Khalid has been talking about, that you've been talking about, because they seem fundamentally to push against those very sort of tasks, which is not to say that as pragmatists, we know that these agreements exist and they will always exist, but then what does one do when only tries to put pressure on them from the outside? I fail to see how we get to the position where the, you know, to quote Matthias' great question, the small guys aren't disenfranchised. It seems hardwired into these agreements. Thanks a lot, Joshua. Could I just ask, Sarah, would you like to respond to, to these questions? Or? Well, perhaps only with the kind of a further tension that I discovered in the book. And, and Sherith says it, it really is a book that beautifully paints those tensions. But one tension I found I came across is that on the one hand, in my, I think, personal view, there, there's too much at stake in the peace agreement. You know, there, there's too much being divided without, if, if we are realists and we say, okay, the guys with the big guns need to sign a peace agreement because they're the ones who are killing people, fine. But then why should the peace agreement also decide what kind of state it's going to be, uh, how the wealth is going to be shared if the civilian politics has been totally excluded? So there's, on the one hand, there's too much at stake. But at the same time, Sherith is really good in his book at showing how all kinds of issues by pragmatic peacemakers are pushed off the table because they don't want to see it because then they can't get to a peace deal. But that argument can also be read as saying, well, the entire, the entire problem of the country, <laughs> you shouldn't fragment, you know, and, and 
the argument is also against this this sequencing everything the moment that you do you you push away issues the book recalls that's depoliticizing but i think in a way politics is about prioritizing it is about so i'm not sure why that is then depolitical anyway the tension i therefore see is on the one hand saying there's too much at stake at the peace agreement and on the other hand the argument yeah but if you don't deal with it in this peace agreement you're depoliticizing issues so and that would push towards including more and more and more issues and and um anyway so i think if if i were to kind of come up with the solution in the sense which of course doesn't exist but if if one takes the realist position one needs to have elite deals and and one says one is not going to get away from elite deals in some sense then i would say well th then at least as peacemakers don't allow it to be about so much you know don't don't push it to also include all these other areas and i think what about both Khulut and, and sheriff and yeah, no, joshua as well said continuously allow that space for the street to take up to have a say or and and, and claim a right to talk about all these other issues that matter uh, thanks a lot sarah i'd like to ask rehab uh, maybe just to make rehab and hussein to make a, a quick comment here because I think the speakers have kind of addressed the questions which you raised, Rehab. Would you like to, to comment or just uh, ask anything to the speakers? That's over to you, Rehab. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me on. I think my question was just leaning to um, something that Sharath just reiterated a couple of minutes ago about the fact that, or even Sarah as well, in trying to do so much, the CPA really achieves very little. So I was just wondering whether the speakers felt if the CPA had perhaps narrowed its view either in hoping to resolve a very specific um, dispute in Sudan, for instance, or focusing on a very specific geography, would they have considered it to have been more successful or less violent in that? So maybe we could pass that to Sharad, because uh, Sarah's also been saying something a bit similar to that, that, that modesty is, is, a, is, to be, is a virtue in, uh, for, for people writing peace deals, uh, not, not to be overambitious. Yeah, I mean, lots of different thoughts there. Um, I think I really agree with what Sarah said. So if I was to wear a, a hat of a bit of a realist pragmatist approach to this, I would say that going to Rehab's second point that she raised in the Q&A, um, that peace processes are more about who gets what rather than what is right. The worst kind of agreement is an agreement that is actually about who gets what, but it's dressed up as what is right. Um, and so it, it, that's where the displacement happens, right? Of everyone has to wait for this other future time to come that is sort of being apparently being protected by this peace agreement and by this transition or by this constitutional project. But actually it what is about who gets what, the agreement in, in, in bare bones is about who gets what, and it protects those who, who get the most as a result. And that's the worst, because I think that's the depoliticization going to Sarah's point, is that the depoliticization is at its worst when um, the, the, the space peacemaking takes up the space of politics, um, but actually then narrows who gets to shape it and, and, and undermines the other claims on that politics. So if it was purely about an elite deal that is just, you know, in some limited bounded sense, um, you know, not about anything more than that. This is just a stitch up, but it, it's what allows the guns to be put down. Then I think the question becomes, well, you know, is that, one, is that really realistic? Because I, none of these interveners feel like intervening and saying, let's just let a few you know, guys with guns 
divvy up the oil we can, and we'll, we'll sanctify and condone this and we'll make it happen. We won't say that they should commit to liberal transformations, et cetera. No interveners actually willing to really do it on that, those terms, I don't think very comfortably, um, but maybe they, they would be. But I think then the other counterpoint to that is, is, yeah, and how do you balance the weighing scales between we're reinforcing this elite belligerent type of politics and the politics of coercion, but the counterpoint to that is how we're protecting this other space and, and how we're enabling and fostering. And I don't, there I think Joshua is a bit right, because I don't think that all of that is really in the interests of or uh, motivation of um, a lot of outside interveners to really go beyond a stitch up between elites that's dressed up as about right and pop, you know liberal transformations um, and to really want to foster and support um, a kind of uh, people politics that you know might might be something much more substantial might be unruly might be messy but is actually really important to foster because it's it's the politics that counts hard to imagine a lot of external interveners really falling behind that um, so for my money I think yeah, there's a point after which the reformers project hits a dead end of peacemaking as a policy sort of space. Um, and I'm certainly feeling increasingly that I reaching that point. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Sharon. We've got three questions. So I'm going to take a couple of them together and then just let the panel, uh, whoever wants to, to, to address them, to go ahead and address them. I'm not going to start pointing fingers at you again. But um, we've got Khalda's question. Khalda, would you like to just... Uh, uh, tell us uh, your question, and then I'll read out one of the questions that's written by an anonymous uh, person. All right, great. Well, thank you, first of all, for the for the discussion. Um, and I apologize because I'm I don't come from a political science background. I actually come from an architecture urbanism uh, background. Um, and my question, I think, uh, touches to the last few points that Khulud and Joshua had made. Um, regarding how um, the priest's agreement in a way or some of the structures that we do have in the country have continued to reproduce violence um, because essentially that's what, what they've been made uh, to do. And I guess my comment stems from, from the fact about how, how, do we, how do we bring this discussion down to the spaces which are directly impacting the people and in such what I think about is is how existing institutions such as our education systems our spatial planning systems and so on continue to reproduce this type of violence um, and so I wonder what the benefits could be or how we could start going about deconstructing those as a way to also kind of bring this discourse closer to the people and to some of these civic uh, movements um, that are spoken about. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Khalda. And there's another question from an anonymous uh, attendee, uh, which maybe kind of chimes in a bit with yours. It's how do we contemplate and read how space making is to be addressed or tackled amidst the current political climate in the face of neoliberal market logics, as well as the everyday ways in which citizens create space across the country in urban, rural areas through resistance, through movement, etc. Where do you think it is important to read from? And does this possibly inform us how to go about understanding space and its creation within the Sudanese context differently? Well, that's a complicated question, but let me uh, hand it over to Sharif to address uh, Khalda and our anonymous uh, questioner's question. 
Um, I, I don't have a straight answer to that, but I think it's, these are really interesting questions, really interesting points. Um, and they really take us in a slightly different direction, but a good, I think a really useful one. I don't know, I won't answer those points directly. I do have um, uh, a bit of reticence to how, I think that the peace building project could take some of these concerns much more seriously, but, and doesn't, and, but that's not really been a focus of my work, um, but, but it is an interesting point. I think I would just bring it back to the here and now in Sudan uh, in terms of what could be done to protect the spaces. So going back to what could peacemakers or outsiders do? So the thing that we know is really crucially important or emphasizes the counter power that is represented by people coming together on the streets um, is, is the protection. It's the guarantor of, of this process of change. And it also informs it. It gives meaning to it in, in the here and now. It doesn't leave it for some time into the future. It's the politics of the present that I think is precious. And I think that maybe then in terms of making one of the things that isn't really given enough attention is the one thing that outsiders might be able to do is to protect that space, not through even just uh, idealized constitutional prescriptions of that space through civil liberties and political rights, but actually literally saying that, you know, for the period up until 2023, these spaces are untouched. You can have the deal, but these spaces are untouched and people are allowed to come there and they're allowed to speak and they're allowed to act and they're allowed to come together and protest or whatever. That's the one, that's the deal we make with you. You know, we condone this agreement, but this space is protected. You mess with that, you know, that's what the peacekeeping mission is for. But, you know, that sort of thinking about protecting a space of possibility for civil political action, that starts to get at some kind of pragmatism that is meaningful about what makers and interveners can do. Um, and I, that, that I would love to see, but I've never seen anything like that in a peacekeeping mission's hands or peace builder, peacemaker kind of toolkit or imaginary. But I think it's exciting and interesting to think about. So thank you for those provocations. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Uh, any, any other uh, panelists would like to respond to those points? I mean, I think just to add on with to what Shada said, if you think about the spaces in which those sort of elite power sharing peace agreements are made, they're made in hotel rooms, they're made in boardrooms, they're made late at night, they're not made in democratic spaces at all. And they're totally like contrasted with the space of the square or of the street, right? And as Shahad said, I think it'd be really fascinating to have a peace process that actually thought about, okay, what would it mean to include those spaces? Or even to think about the possibility of building up questions of legitimacy from discussions that happen in streets or in under the mango tree if you're in South Sudan or in the Luak. And I think like whatever my skepticism about the national dialogue process in South Sudan was, and the way it was instrumentalized, actually it was a much more interesting model of having communities talk to each other than the current peace agreement, precisely because it did not just involve a different set of people, but those people also require different types of spaces. And they require different types of conversations to occur in those spaces. But as Sharath said, I've never seen any sort of interest in that from anyone involved in peace building or peacemaking, and that points to a pretty significant absence. Uh, that's great, thanks a lot. I'd agree. Um... Good, yeah. I, I agree with Joshua's last point, because what we saw with the JPA is that both Sudan and South Sudan as the host pretty much reproduced exactly the same, you know, orthodoxies I was speaking of earlier. And so there's this sort of inherent tendency to just kind of reproduce the model, which is, you know, 80% of the problem, I'd say. And the other thing is that, you know, on the question of uh, the sit-ins, 
right, and, and this creation of spaces. I think what, what we saw, not just at the sitting site, but since then, is that, you know, left to their own devices, these groups can sort of come up with their own reference points, with their own point, you know, with their own uh, negotiation points, with their own logics, right? And it's to what extent they can then be not, not, not included in a rubric that's already sort of fleshed out, but can be allowed to lead the way, right? And the, and the point there is allowed. What we saw at the sitting site was, a, you know, sort of a state taking up without any sort of formal state infrastructure getting involved. What we saw, what we've seen since the coup, where the political parties have effectively been sort of wiped out um, from the political landscape, is that resistance committees have adapted and evolved to do some of the, the works of political parties. And so they've come up with um, policies and statements. You know, recently there was one released by the uh, Omdurman Resistance Committee about modes of local governance. This is not something necessarily that they were built to do, but they have evolved to do that. I'm not sure to what extent that work is getting any traction. My sense would be uh, not at all. But the point is that there are, if, if one looks hard enough and sometimes not even very hard, there are already documents and ways and pathways and structures emanating from um, these sort of dismissed groups that should be looked at and they should be allowed to lead that way and that space that they have created in order to do that should be protected because that's one of the things that this coup is has done and it has, is continuing to do is close down on that space when it comes to the international uh, sort of uh, the international community allowing for this i'm going to sort of pose a pr provocative um, statement which is that you know in in much of these I think the re it's not just the illegibility of amorphous groups that is the problem for the international community. I think it's also that back home where they are, there is also a sort of rejection or at the very least uh, a fear of these kinds of groups in their own countries, right? Like the Gilets Jaunes in, in, um, in, in France or the Black Lives Matter movement elsewhere. Those are actually the closest sort of allegories to what's going on in Sudan right now on the street level. And so there isn't actually a very natural tendency for these international counterparts and these international governments to naturally side with these kinds of movements. They certainly don't do it back home. And, you know, this sort of became this crystallized for me recently when I was at a congressional hearing and I was speaking to, you know, a bunch of seasoned senators, shall we say, and then Corey Bush from the Black Lives Matter movement, who subsequently became a congresswoman, um, asked me a question and I realized she has more of an idea of what I'm talking about than certainly the other two who, you know, seasoned though they are and interested in human rights though they are, there was a lot less sort of to travel to get her to understand where, where I was coming from in terms of trying to, you know, reflect um, what the wishes of the Sudanese streets were. And so that's kind of the problem, isn't it? That you have these structures in place in the West predominantly, also, of course, in the Gulf that don't really tolerate um, effectively the kind of movements that we see in Sudan and so there is more of a tendency to not you know they kind of come in not being able to read them well not being able to engage with them well there's a lot of work that needs to be done to to, to get that to happen in Sudan for example. Thanks a lot Khulud and um, Sarah would you like to respond? No perhaps the one thing is just also from the perspective of the the internationals is it, it always feels safer I think to side with process than with substance you know, so it's so difficult, I think, for outsiders to say, 
well, we, we, we want to support politically, you know, these specific people with these specific ideas, because especially as, as many have said, you know, if, if the people on the street have all these different things, like does as an outsider, does one have the right to say, well, these are the right political claims and these are the wrongs. And I think the idea of self-determination is a word that hasn't really come up uh, in the discussion yet, but is important in the sense of self-determination also has another side, which is non-intervention, you know, and, and that means what we've been talking about, create or allowing space for Sudanese to do things themselves. And the moment one says, well, you know, internationals should support specific goals or um, specific causes, that becomes a huge, um, a huge issue. So I would, I think, aside very much on the, on the the, the process side and when when Sheraton and Joshua were, were talking about okay indeed this idea of you can protect a space but international peacekeeping operations don't really do that I thought well they have really bad experience with it you know if you think about the safe havens that was not a not a political space uh, it, it was a, a, a space of victims you know but the UN was pretty bad at it and you can again see I think from the perspective of self-determination why one would be reluctant to do that in, in a sense of really promising peacekeepers around such a space, because it would be seen as kind of an intervention in the sovereignty of a um, state. But that, on that point, I would much more go back to this point of solidarity that was mentioned. Like diplomats can show solidarity. They can stand there <laughs> at the, at, at the sit-ins and be interested and engage in discussions and, and what Gholud also mentioned, you know, learning from the street, learning what's going on, having that sitting around that cup of tea um, and for endless discussions. So anyway, these are just a, a few comments and perhaps on a, on a more cynical note, but whenever you were talking about, you know, the mango tree or the, or the big tent, I thought that the takeaway of this was that immediately the UN, UN is going to start building these big tents because of course we need to implement, we need to operationalize and uh, <laughs> we get new big tents built. Eddie, can I just say something very briefly, um, if that's okay? And that is that I think what's really interesting, coming back to the point about, well, the regional landscape, um, the global context changing as well, is that, you know, from the point of view of, broadly speaking, Western, you know, states' perspectives, like the, if there was ever a time to, to be more concerned with protecting what's happening on the street as a representation of a kind of politics as opposed to not the kind of agreement-based, deal-based politics, because a lot of people in the region and elsewhere are happy to support the agreement deal-based politics, doesn't need more people to pile in on it, um, that actually diplomats bearing witness to what's happening on the street or and, and siding with that and sort of saying that there's certain things that, you know, they're willing to stand out in front of and say this needs to be protected, that's a kind of politics that I think is, is, is the most important one, not the way to make the process work really neatly on the, on the elite deal, because I think there's enough attention to that. It gets enough reinforcement from those who have no interest in the street politics and indeed would seek to undermine it, especially in the region. So I think it is really interesting to think about what certain particular states, powerful states that have been involved in Sudanese politics for some time do on that regard um, and how they tread carefully to, to protect and not intervene in it and try to instrumentalize it, but nevertheless give it some power um, from their position. Oh, thanks a lot, Charlotte. That was a great response. We have a couple of questions left, but we've only got a few minutes and uh, I think we probably need to draw our discussion to a close here.
So the other questions are about the, the role of the diaspora, the role of the international justice. They're pretty big questions, and I'm not sure if we've got very much time to address them. So I would like to just kind of conclude our discussion today by thanking, first of all, Sharat for a really fascinating sort of talk about his book and a fascinating set of responses to all the questions that it's raised. And thanking to our distinguished panel, Khalud and Sarah and Joshua. I really enjoyed listening to each one of you. Um, it's always fascinating to hear what you've got to say about how peace processes work and don't work in a country like Sudan. I'm going to conclude here, but I'm going to pass over to Raja and Pauline just to uh, speak on behalf of uh, RBI. Raja. Thank you so much, Eddie, for your excellent moderation. I do apologize for my background noise. I am also in a public place. Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to thank our audiences and our panelists for um, joining us today and for contributing to uh, furthering the debate on the past and future of peacemaking in the Horn of Africa. I just wanted to make a quick no uh, note that both Africa International African Institute hosts African Arguments, the book series, and uh, the Rift Valley Institute, historically research institutions that have invested in engaging scholarly writing on and from the continent. And you would see it in the quality of the content that they produce. Uh, Stephanie, before she left us, has shared, had shared a lot of valuable information in the chat box. Please go back to that. Uh, the RVI itself has produced many publications over the past decades pertaining to the peacemaking and peace building, but also other avenues and other issues. Please uh, visit the RVI website to access all these materials. They're free. Thank you all so much once again, and stay tuned. This is uh, just a taster of what's to come. Thank you, Raja, again, and thanks to everyone for talking to me. Thank you all for a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks, thanks to everybody. Bye. Yeah, bye. Bye all. Bye, Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>